Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is a Band of Brothers podcast. We're doing episode number five, which is titled Crossroads. I'm Tim, and joining me, of course, is Tom. How are you today, Tom? Present and accounted for. My baby has not reported for duty yet, though. So <laughs> we're we're looking. The due date was yesterday. We are looking into declaring him or her AWOL, and uh, you know, unfortunately, that's a not a great way to start out life. But you know, military justice is what it is. That's true. That's the question is: Are you going to be on the prosecution <laughs> side or the defense side? I, I mean, you might have to recuse yourself because of the particular relationship you have. Um, Mar- Marissa will make that assignment. I, <laughs> I, I, t- I take orders here. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, a little, little bit of, of kind of behind the scenes stuff, folks. Uh, we're recording this on May 28th. It is Memorial Day, so it's kind of a fitting day for us to be banging out an episode here of Dispatches from the Front. Um, we're actually, our intent here is to knock out a couple of episodes. So we're going to cover uh, both Crossroads as well as Bastogne. Um, you as a listener won't really know the difference because uh, they're going to be released separately at separate times and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we wanted to get a couple in the bag here. One, because of uh, Tom's uh, in, in, impending baby. Uh, which we don't know exactly how that's going to be impacting his <laughs> podcasting schedule in the near future. And uh, I leave in about two weeks for Germany for a couple of weeks. So we wanted to make sure that we had an episode that we could release kind of in that time period to uh, to hold you over and keep us fairly close to, to being on schedule here with, with our releases as you expect them to be. So uh, some of the timing might be a little bit off, but we appreciate your patience with it. And, uh, and that's that. I, that's kind of all I have for the behind the scenes stuff. Right, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. We'll see when this baby arrives, but he, he or she, we don't know the sex, but will not disrupt these two episodes at least unless I get, I, Tim and I joked before this, that <laughs> if I rip my headset off and go running and it's Tim gets left to record by himself and you guys are left to just listen to Tim, his dulcet voice, uh, talking to you about these two episodes, you'll know why. And hopefully you'll grant me a pass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure folks will excuse that. Uh, they'll excuse you, not me, unfortunately. So that's uh, and certainly stay tuned to Twitter and uh, Discord for the for the impending announcement. Yes. Of, uh, of, of, of baby Tom. So we'll name, we've picked the name. If it's a boy, his name will be Captain Sobel. (laughs) (laughs) Not (laughs) just Captain Sobel. We're not going to give like an, like Captain will be the first name and then Sobel will be the middle name. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. Well, I I certainly hope that your son doesn't grow up to be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll be the one revoking his weekend passes, so don't you worry. That's right. That's right. <laughs> At least until he's out of high school. That's right. All right. So uh, this episode here, Crossroads, really, really interesting episode. It is completely different from all of its predecessors and quite honestly, very different from all the episodes that came after. Uh, of course, based on the story by Stephen Ambrose, screenplay here was by Eric Gendrison and is directed by this guy, um, Hanks, Hank, Hank, Hanks. I think Tom. I Tom think you're Hanks. close. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, like a 
like a couple movies I feel like I've seen with him. I'm not sure though. No, like an extra or something like that. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> if you saw his face, you would probably know him. Probably, probably, yeah. So yeah, Tom Hanks, uh, who who is one of the executive producers uh, for Band of Brothers, he came in and directed this, and uh, just an incredibly deep episode. I I, I love this episode. I, I love the the different take on it and the story that it takes you through, even though seemingly the story itself, I think superficially isn't like this really big or important story you can dig into it quite a bit just really really interesting so tom uh please walk us through the the main storyline here of of this episode yeah so even though we're not dealing with a a massive undertaking like tim said no d-day or market garden here there's some important stuff that happens here captain winters recalls an attack throughout the episode in which he led easy company on what he thought was going to be hitting a, a small German machine gun nest not too far from the division headquarters. Turns out that the attack was a surprise to both sides. Easy Company encountered not just a machine gun nest, but a force easily twice their size or more, two entire companies of German SS soldiers. The element of surprise weighed heavily in Easy's favor as they, they ended up wiping out the SS companies, but they still suffered some casualties themselves. Winters ends up coming out of this mission and, and is rewarded for his efforts so far in the war by getting a promotion that gives him no extra rank and no extra pay, but does bump him up to the 2nd Battalion Executive Officer. And there's an important shift that we'll talk about that happens with that promotion, so to speak. Winters has reservations about leaving his command of Easy Company and Ultimately, as he transitions out of the command role, Easy is tasked with rescuing a group of British paratroopers who have been stuck behind enemy lines since Operation Market Garden. They end up, uh, they get moved with 2nd Battalion to Bastogne toward the end of the episode uh, to, to replace and, and sort of shore up the American defenses there as the German army makes a major push in an offensive that will ultimately be known as the Battle of the Bulge. Second Battalion is severely underquipped, and they're just not prepared for a prolonged encounter in the dead of winter there in Belgium. And to top matters off, they have little respect for their new commander, the glorious, wonderful Lieutenant Dyke. <laughs> Which, again... You know, Lieutenant Dyke is is one of those. Uh, the, I mean, we say character, but I mean, real life person. Uh, as 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 a lot of the people are who we see in Band of Brothers, much like Solbo, who you you kind of have to wonder how ticked off the family members are when they see their ancestors, their family members being depicted like this. <laughs> I mean, you know, facts are facts, right? Uh, and, and you kind of can't get around them but yeah it's it's an interesting thing um we'll we'll talk a little bit more about lieutenant dyke and and some of his activities or or lack thereof <laughs> as we get into it so uh, largely we see uh our normal cast here with easy as tom mentioned a lot of this is really centered around uh winters and him kind of reliving a this this raid as he's writing a report so the episode is kind of a series of flashbacks, but there's still a, a concerted forward 
movement in present day, which is also kind of interesting. So, you know, you, you see winners going back to reviewing his notes or uh, typing on the typewriter, which clearly he has no skill for because he does it with two fingers, one on each hand, <laughs> click, click. Click um, to to which you know Nixon also uh, advises him earlier on that you know keep keep things short uh, use use the first person use we a lot. <laughs> um, it's not a novel, Dick. Yeah, it's not literature. Dick. <laughs> uh, so you know we we see uh, a lot of our regular soldiers and our NCOs in this. Uh, we do have that bit of appearance by Colonel Sink uh, when he actually gives winners his would-be promotion uh, to, to XO for 2nd Battalion. And um, we also have a bit of a cameo very, very late in the episode uh, from someone who you might recognize from, from late-night TV, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, he makes a, a, an appearance as a Lieutenant Rice, who I'm assuming is, is a, a supply officer of some measure. And, and uh, when we get to that point, we'll kind of talk about what, what his bit of involvement was. But... Um, again, just kind of one of those really great cameos that we see throughout this entire series of, of folks who are so recognizable today. Yeah, and what I liked about this episode, Tim, you touched on this in the intro to it a few minutes ago, was that how different this episode was. I mean, I I hate to call it a change of pace episode because it kept the pressure up quite a bit, mm -hmm. but this was different. In, in a lot of different ways from some of the other episodes, from everything from how the story was told uh, to, to actually, you know, the, the mechanics, what Easy was actually involved in. I, I touched on this a second ago, but you don't have Easy involved in some massive operation. Some they're, they're not operating on some critical portion of a line or a flank. They're not jumping into to some unknown territory and being surrounded. They're based out of a command post, a headquarters, mm -hmm. and they're sort of doing low-key operations. This is sort of the cleanup and aftermath period immediately after Market Garden. And in fact, really the main thing that's going on here is they're they're helping the British First Airborne that lost just a ton of men, about 8,000 soldiers up at Arnhem on the north end of the uh, Operation Market Garden's sweep. And really, I, this is sort of a recovery operation that, that is going on in the background. That's what they're planning for this operation Pegasus as they call it. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, that's there, there's just sort of normal low key operations going on. What did you think of the, the way that Hanks told the story of this episode? Cause it's very different from the previous four that we've had so far. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely brilliant because they, the episode opens up uh, from what I recall with that scene of, of, Winter's running. He's just running across the field. You don't, don't see anything else. You hear his footfalls and you hear him breathing. And he comes up over that crest and he sees the soldier. And he kind of hesitates. And the soldier looks up. The soldier surprises hell to see him. And Winter's like waits like two heartbeats longer than you expect him to. Or then a soldier really should be waiting. And then finally takes the shot and kills the soldier. And then it, and then, then it cuts. And then we end up in, in present day and they're, you know, talking about what they're doing. And then you realize that through the episode, it, it's just a series of flashbacks to talk about 
this particular assault, and then they they put that opposed to uh, this rescue mission for the British Airborne, and the couple of injuries that came from that, which was otherwise a very successful mission, uh, to get what was it? It was several dozen British Airborne paratroopers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, back across across the river and and into Allied territory. So, really, just very very interesting with how this whole episode flowed i think the brilliance of it and this is a credit to tom hanks as a storyteller but this is all modified first person stuff Mm -hmm. i think ordinarily if if you just had us if you were to film this in some standard way and were to to have sort of the same structure you would hear winters narrating or damian lewis narrating Mm. what he's seeing because the the basic construct is that he's you're you're watching things from the uh, after action report play out on screen as he's recalling this stuff and typing and i think what all of us are typically used to is that sort of standard storytelling format for that that type of plot where the narrator is leading you through his thoughts Mm -hmm. but tom hanks doesn't need that crutch if you will or that device to to move the story along it becomes readily apparent that not only is that exactly what's happening but you see it in this fragmented way because i think what it really is is the way winner's brain is working as he's typing this he's you know he advances the story a little bit he gets interrupted by nixon or somebody else that's talking to and he keeps coming back again and again and again to that memory of shooting the the young german soldier i you you keyed on it perfectly that that's that is one of the most important experiences i think he has up to this point in the entire war of all the things that he's seen and he's been through you don't see him flashing back and and really focusing in on on much else it's all of a sudden this young soldier makes a mark on him yeah yeah very true it it seems to be very influential to him Certainly in this episode, we see it being directly influential, but then I think in the future, it it still weighs heavily very, very much on him. Um, Because of how this particular episode is structured, bouncing back and forth between two storylines, I think it's easiest for us to just kind of pick a storyline and talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So with the main one being that that attack on, on the crossroads. We see that on kind of the, the, the first day of this, which is essentially a bit of recon, they knew that there was, again, what they suspected to be a, a machine gun nest out there, which was shooting in the direction of battalion headquarters, but obviously was, was too far away from battalion headquarters to really make any kind of difference at all. Uh, but nonetheless, they wanted to eliminate it, and but it was over this, this, this rise, uh, like this little bit of a dike, I guess, and... So they didn't have any visibility of, of what was there from, from their approach. They have this this bit of a recon. They figure out what's there. They see some some soldiers there. Uh, they have some exchange with them early on, but nothing really comes of it. That ends up being in the evening. They essentially hang out for the night. Early the next morning, Winters devises this plan. He says, okay, you know, you guys are going to go here. You guys are going to go there. And we're going to start this charge on on, on Red Smoke. And uh, so, you know, Winters gets ready, grabs a smoke grenade, throws it down, starts running. 
and he's running <laughs> and he's running on his and the other and the guys are like so when's he gonna pop the smoke the the smoke grenade did not it, it malfunctioned to some extent uh and it took a little longer you know several seconds probably 10 15 seconds uh to actually pop than than what it's meant to be doing so in the end of this winners comes over this crest and encounters this soldier and when he does He's he's alone. There's there's no one, uh, certainly not within arms reach of him, and probably half a football field away. And uh, and as I said, they they can't see over this crest. They're not seeing what Winters sees. Winters kills that first soldier, and then turns and sees a bunch of other SS there, and just starts ripping off shots. Yeah. Um, and like all you can think of when you're watching this as a viewer is like. So Winters is standing on top of this this little bit of a crest, completely exposed, like <laughs> pulling a Rambo with his single shot M1. You know, pow, 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 um, until you finally hear the 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 ping of the uh, of the magazine empty, and then he loads another one in. And as he's loading the other one in, I mean, still the Germans are like, what what, what what's going on? We have no no idea. I mean, he lucks out. There's a couple of guys that draw down on him, and 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 as they're swinging their guns around, he kills them. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of other guys from mm-hmm. Easy come up over the top. Uh, but it was just like it, ve- it was very surreal, and the way that they, the way that Hanks directed it was also very surreal with kind of some of the the camera angles and the changes in color and what was focused on. And, you know, like I said, all you could hear were footfalls and heavy breathing as they were running. And and those things just made it, they contributed to that whole feeling of it, which is really cool. Yeah. I think that goes to the, his intent to tell winner's perspective from this modified first person. Cause you think winner's is remembering this and what's probably the only thing that he, heard during all of that is his own footsteps yeah. and his breathing right mm-hmm. and maybe the, the swish of his equipment yep. but uh, the smoke was funny enough that Marissa actually was watching it with me and she said did he intend to, to delay that and I was like no the fuse no. <laughs> malfunctioned luckily it didn't fully malfunction but it didn't fire right away yeah. and I just love the fact that the, the soldiers were ready to go they started to go up out of the their position and then another lieutenant said no we wait for the smoke and he yeah. held them back yeah <laughs> <laughs> like D- dick winters always says exactly what he means and he said to wait so we wait <laughs> mm-hmm. which is it's kind of ironic because it almost turned it into a sobel you know Ohio silver kind of moment for winners yeah as he's just charging across the field on his own <laughs> and everyone's just Still sitting there looking at each other, like, what? What? what do we go? What, what's yeah. going on? And he even you talk about Rambo <laughs> moments. When he gets up to the the top of the crest, there, he even hip fires his Garand. I mean, he doesn't mm-hmm. put it up to his shoulder and aim down the sights. I mean, yeah, soldier's probably like twenty five, thirty meters away. But uh, I, I just think about miss. it's real yeah. easy to miss. I mean, television and movies make it seem like it's. Well, yeah, you just point the thing in the direction of someone <laughs> and guaranteed you're going to hit them. Um, it's really freaking easy to miss when you consider that just a, you know, a, a slight movement of your barrel is going to throw you feet off of a person, depending on how far they are. So, yeah, um, yeah you know, the, the, the hip shooting thing was also something else that stands out like either he's, you know, a good marksman or he's really lucky or, well, Hollywood. So, <laughs> yeah, right. I just thought it was fascinating that 
and you see this play out. We'll talk about this in a, a few minutes because it becomes a, a friction point between him and Nixon mm-hmm. as Winters transitions in his role. But they take up a position. They see the German machine gun nest firing down the road toward regimental headquarters, which is like three miles down the road, they say. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no room to sort of reckon. The only reconnoitering that happens is Winters running across the road himself, yeah. getting an eyeball of the, the position and sort of a, charting out an approach that they can take to and what they're doing is he's making sure that it's clear so they can get behind and on the flank of this machine gun just mm-hmm. because to reposition that machine gun takes just a minute if they can get up and, and there's a an avenue of approach where they can get to it and put you know good fire on that that nest it'll be that much easier to destroy it so that's what he's doing but winners outright admits they have no idea what's on the other side of that berm. He said there's a ferry crossing right there. It's really important to the Germans. So there could be an entire regiment there, and they don't know. Yep. Uh, But they haven't seen any other evidence of of much beyond this machine gun nest. So I think (laughs) he he does this sort of two-wave approach where he takes uh, a piece of one of the platoons, and then the rest are supposed to to come up later. Mm -hmm. But uh, (laughs) the element of surprise is good because it almost cost them dearly. Oh yeah, I, I mean that you know. That, so this initial attack, they they catch the Germans by surprise, and then over the other side of of another berm, where basically where the where the road was, that's where we see an entire other company of F, of SS soldiers uh, start flooding over, and so now they end up in a more of a prolonged engagement, and uh, the the guys from Easy Company have to pull back a touch and kind of take up a better position. Winners gets some mortar, uh, some of the mortar guys engaged. That's not enough. They call in an artillery strike. And as the allied artillery starts hitting very clearly, the Germans also call in their own artillery strike. Mm-hmm. So you, you end up with a lot of confusion because all of a sudden the, the, the guys from easy, you see artillery coming in way too close to them. Yeah. And certainly I think they're initially thinking that this is friendly fire. This is their own artillery that dialed in a little too close on them. Uh, but it ended up being some German artillery. But once they were able to take out the German, uh, the German ground forces that, that they were facing, the German artillery let up because obviously they had no intel. They didn't know what they were dealing with. So they end up capturing a, a fair amount of, of POWs. They had what was it Winter said they they had actually they had one one KIA from Easy right, but then there were a good number of of guys that were wounded. Yeah, and Winters characteristically uh, gets a little upset over that. They ended up with twenty two wounded in action and one KIA. Mm-hmm. And Nixon is there's another lieutenant that's that's talking to him about it. And he sort of, he wasn't in the battle, but he sort of chalks it up. He's like, Hey, that's pretty good for two companies full of Germans. Plus, you know, all the other stuff and winners is a little pissed. Yeah. He's like, that's, you know, you're, you're saying these things as, as wounded Americans are lying there and they did lose a soldier that, you know, somebody very important to winners. Yep. Um, even if it's a private and Nixon kind of, calms him down a little bit and he says, you know, he kind of lays out the statistics and the success of the battle and says, you know, look, 
I think the underlying tone of Nixon's comments is this is casualties for us are inevitable, but the balance of this particular engagement weighed heavily in our favor. And if that's the cost of wiping out this many, not just German soldiers, but SS, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in the military lingo section of the episode, that's that's a decent day. Bad day for those soldiers, but a decent day, you know, for the the Allied war effort overall. And I I, I love in that moment they do put in a, a bit of levity where you know Winters is sitting there and, and Nixon's standing over him as they're talking, and Nixon uh, t- t- or Winters turns to Nixon and says, "Yeah, I I need a drink of, of water." He, he clarifies. <laughs> And 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 Nixon pulls out his canteen. He opens it up, and he starts to hand it to Winners, and then pulls it back real quick. He sniffs it. He says, "Yep, it's water." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's I. So I didn't have this in the notes, but that it's a topic that I wanted to ask you about because you see some more of their relationship, Winners and Nixon here in in a couple different lights and i wanted to ask you about your thoughts on how hanks sort of builds these two characters over the course of this episode you know they have obviously a fantastic kinship they balance each other out winners is kind of the straight man in the relationship and and nixon despite being an intel guy who you would expect to be very straight laced and and serious all the time he's not we obviously see kind of the continued story of at least hints of him being an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, even in, in this episode, he goes up into uh, Winner's quarters while Winner's is sitting there typing up uh, his report on this incident and says, hey, yeah, you know, I'm I, I'm here again to raid your footlocker. Because if you remember, all of uh, Nixon's booze, for some reason, are in Winner's Foot Locker. <laughs> and they have this whole discussion of, hey, you, you know, you, you can stop this at any time. He's like, what, the drinking? No, having it in my Foot Locker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, like, a moment later, they have the opposite exchange. And Nixon says, you know what, you're right. I could stop this at any time. And and Winter says, uh, the drinking? No, no, keeping it in your footlocker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because they just dance. They're they're dancing around his alcoholism. It's clear that yeah, Winters thinks he's an alcoholic, and Nixon has this depression or th- this depressing sort of realization as well. I don't think he's in denial. It's just that I don't think he wants to quit at this point in the war. No, and. Yeah, he keeps it in Winner's Footlocker because Winner's is the the golden child who's above reproach. Nobody's going to be executing a search of Winner's Footlocker, yeah. and certainly no one's going to suspect him of actually having alcohol. So it's just easier that way. Well, and I think for Nixon, it also makes it the alcohol is accessible because he always knows he can go into Winner's Footlocker and get it. But it's not his own footlocker. It's not right in front of him where he can just, you know, yeah. basically roll out of bed and grab another bottle. Um, he actually, you know, has to make an effort to to go get some. And, and 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 even in this exchange, Nixon, kind of more to himself than even Winners, says, "Yeah, you know, I should stop." And then he takes uh, takes a swig out of the bottle. Yeah. So it's just yeah, it's 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 this thing, and 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 we see it. Um, 
couple episodes, I think, from now, we, we see that alcoholism come to head one night. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of this continued theme for, for Nixon. But I, these two guys are, are, are truly, I mean, with, you know, Band of Brothers really comes to its best definition with these two guys because they really are brothers in so many ways. I mean, they, they talk about, as the series goes on, they talk about what they're going to do after the war. Uh, Nixon's family owns a factory or something, and he's like, hey, you know, you want to come work for my family? I, you know, I'll, I'll make sure you have a job. Yeah. I mean, they're 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 taking care of each other, not only in the war zone, but beyond that, too. And they really seem to have a great understanding of each other. And I think that that plays into the, the business with the alcohol, because you look at winners and you look at every decision that he makes during the war. There's a, a bit of an interview at the very beginning with one of the actual soldiers. And he said, winners always make made the right choices. Mm hmm. This is this is a wrong choice, right? No doubt that keeping Nixon's alcohol in his footlocker is is you know obviously against regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for those of you that may be unaware, you you can't drink in in theater. <laughs> I don't know whether they had these days. It's called General Order Number One, and it's just like the no fun rule. Like you you know, there's no no drinking primarily, but no sexual relations, no. You know, it's it's a long laundry list of things, but mm-hmm. it's a serious thing that you can get in trouble for. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure they had some variant of it in theater here. And so for winners, it's this persistent breaking of this rule for a man that doesn't break rules. Right. I mean, he's he's the consummate commissioned officer. Mm-hmm. But I think for winters, it's a conscious choice to do that because that's that's sort of a it's the one control measure that Nixon has is like weak as it is. You, I think you hit it spot on that this is like a, a safety valve, if you will, for Nixon, because he can't get it because he has to go to Dick. Not only does it keep him connected, but it keeps some measure of control over his intake. Yeah. But I think it's a connection there. I think winners is hesitant to give that, that connection up because if Nixon doesn't have to go to him, for the alcohol, I mean, you know, you, you risk eroding the bond there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that they're suddenly not going to be friends <laughs> because Nixon has his bottles in his own room. But it's this indelible thing. It's this secret that they both share. And Nixon, Nixon sees in Winters a, a character flaw that, like, you know, hey, Winters is a normal guy. He's not just this messiah uh, built by Uncle Sam to command troops. He's a real guy, right? <laughs> right? And he can be a real friend. And the other way around, I, th- I think winners by, he doesn't see Nixon as just this like alcoholic, you know, guy that, who doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he, he's a, a friend and somebody that, that needs help. He's in a true struggle. So anyhow, I, I, the, the alcohol business is like a sort of a fascinating thread that plays through this entire series, not just this episode. We also see uh, kind of at the end of this exchange uh, in the field after this assault between Winners and Nixon, um, we see Winners approach Liebgott, who is uh, just kind of, you know, lying on, on the top of one of these berms, taking pot shots at injured Germans who are lying in the battlefield. He sees somebody move. And and he shoots him, and um, obviously that's that's not what they should be doing. 
uh, the, the the battle itself is is over. And uh, so so Winters approaches him and 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 does he gets pretty terse with him. He yells at him to get him to stop, and then says, "Okay, I want you to escort POWs down to headquarters." And Leavegott says, yeah, okay, fine. And the Winters realizes, well, gee, it's probably not a good idea for me to let this guy who I just watched essentially assassinate a handful of injured German soldiers walk three miles down the road escorting some POWs. That's that's probably not going to work out well. So he says, hey, you know, let, let, let me see your rifle. Leavegott hands him the rifle. Winners takes the clip out of it, makes sure there is one round that's in the chamber, hands it back to Liebgott, uh, to which Liebgott, of course, protests, and Winner says, hey, you've got one round. If you shoot one of them, the rest of them are going to kill you. He doesn't even trust Liebgott to, to drop his own magazine, because no. you see that moment, that moment of realization. He gives the order, and then he takes Liebgott's weapon from him, Drops out that the magazine mm-hmm. and then hands it right back to him with one round in there. Yep. And and it's it's an amazing um, when you look at it. I mean, it, it's yes, it's a necessary and reasonable thing that that winners does. But when you also look at it, like from a, a, a managerial or leadership perspective, like that's wrong. <laughs> You should you should expect that you're going to tell the guy don't shoot the prisoners and that that's what should be done. But obviously, Liebgott, you know, Winters recognizes that Liebgott is not in a good place mentally to be following that order. So he has to intervene in a different way, which which of course was an an appropriate way for that. But it it, it just absolutely crazy that he had to go to that extent. How do you think Lieutenant Spears would have handled Liebgott? <laughs> oh, he probably he probably would have handed him another magazine. <laughs> Here's a flamethrower. Make sure yeah. they get back. Air quotes uh, around. Get back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, th- th- I think that would have been totally different. It, it... Here's a Vulcan cannon. Make sure they get back. <laughs> So we definitely do see some some unfortunate treatment of, of POWs here. And um, even though it was a fairly brief moment in this episode, this is something that was seen throughout the war in a lot of different people where folks are either so traumatized and essentially pissed off at, hey, in this battle, there was a guy next to me who is who is fighting with me who's now dead. Um, or a lot of guys who were fighting next to me who are now dead because of you. And so I'm going to kill you and all of your people. You have a lot of people who have end up with some measure of, of serious moral flexibility and a lot of other issues. And, um, you know, it's something they, they touch on not often in, in this series, but a, a couple of times. And reflecting a bit on um, Saving Private Ryan which as we discussed in our, our introductory episode that which so heavily influenced Hanks and Spielberg getting together to do Band of Brothers Saving Private Ryan has a, a significant segment in it on on treatment of a, of a POW and where Tom Hanks character 
has to basically save a, a POW from the men in his command who were going to kill him. Yeah, and I this is a really interesting and an almost persistent theme throughout these episodes. I think this instance in particular is a really unique way of showing how this sort of problem is handled because you, Winters is making this decision with Liebgott that, A, he needs medical treatment. He needs to go back to battalion anyhow. Mm-hmm. But you also have a, a legal obligation to get these prisoners back, to safeguard them to the rear, which is the requirement under, under international law, and, and process them. Mm-hmm. And I, I may have talked about this in a an earlier episode, I don't know, but tangibly, or I guess practically speaking, following these sort of rules is important because the Germans are, are very keen and aware of, of you know, the treatment of their own prisoners. And certainly, you know, Germans or the Japanese army, they're going to do what they're going to do. But I think generally the, the professional members of the, the German army, not the SS or some of the more extreme elements, but they're going to be more incentivized to follow the rules if we're following the rules. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say beyond that, regardless of what you think the Germans or the SS or the Japanese are doing to our soldiers when they get captured, it's not an excuse, uh, nor is it a justification to to not follow the rules for your, you know, yourselves. I mean, you know, these things came, these rules came about not to restrict or endanger soldiers lives but to actually bring some measure of civility to combat and prisoners of war had up to that point had just traditionally been exposed to such horrors yeah that this is one of the most important subsets of of rules you know in in the entire body of the law of war and i think you see winners may bend in other places but this is one place that he's he's not going to be a lieutenant spears in Right, and I thought, you know, I thought it was a really creative way to to deal with this problem. And I don't know that Liebgott was the only one that that escorted him back there, but interestingly, you also saw Nixon kind of shout out an order as they they march him back to segregate him. And there's a an intent in doing that. You know, that's one of the the ways in which you prevent POWs from communicating and potentially organizing an uprising or something like that is by sec, you know separating them separate officers from enlisted mm-hmm. uh you know you break apart the group so to speak so that communication breaks down and they can't effectively organize but anyhow that was one of my favorite parts of this whole scene or this whole episode yeah it was it was very small but it was still incredibly meaningful so we we see a lot of impact of this whole thing particularly that first soldier that that winners had shot having a big impact on him through this whole thing, not only in writing his report, but it just constantly seems to weigh on, weigh on him. Uh, he does get a couple days uh, pass to Paris for some R&R, and that really seems to be not effective at all for him. It, it, it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work. He, he continues having these kind of flashbacks and, and seeing the face of, of this soldier and, and, and some of the others in the people around him and his mind kind of keeps on wandering and, you know, maybe an extent, probably an extent of, of PTSD. Uh, it's, it, this isn't the first person that winners has killed, but 
this was someone who distance wise was very close. I mean, he, he got to see this kid's face and that hesitation kind of helped to burn the image of that kid's face into his mind. You know, this wasn't just a, the, the, the other soldiers, he, he, their faces weren't coming to him because it was just, he scanned quick, saw the threat and just started popping off shots. But this one kid, winners was as surprised as, as this kid was when they came face to face. And, and that yeah. really stuck with him. That impacted him a lot. And, and, this is just one of those things I think where we really, where we start to see more of, of this PTSD uh, become realized and, and really weighing heavily on these guys. Yeah. You see it too with Buck at the end. They're mm-hmm. all, before they get orders to go to Bastogne, they're all sitting around watching the movie movie announcement is made that they're moving out. Pass, passes are revoked. It should have been Sobel that came in and did that, but <laughs> passes get revoked. And everybody clears out of the movie hall, and Buck is just still sitting there shell-shocked. You see more... We'll, we'll talk more about Buck and uh, you know the unfortunate effects of the war on him in the Bastogne episode, because you see it more there, but Buck is just sitting there staring off into nothing. I mean, this is a, another officer, a, a very popular officer in the unit and they're, they're about to go off on an important mission and he's just sitting there frozen. Yeah. And I, you're seeing, even though these, you think about it, this is October of, uh, you know, October, probably very early November of 44. They've been in combat just since June when they jumped in. Yeah. And you see the, I think when you think about that, look Mm -hmm. at the calendar and you're talking just a handful of months and the volume of combat and the sort of scale of combat that they've seen in that short period of time is really starting to take its toll. Mm-hmm. You think about a normal army unit deploys today for between nine and 12 months. You know, if that's, if you're, if you're thinking about those sort of calendar terms for easy company, I mean, they're not even at the halfway point. Right. And you, you they've seen this much and, and they've had th- these sort of effects. And I think more broadly with winners, it's not just the PTSD, but you see him just out of his element. I mean, he's this golden child officer. He's good at everything else. He's a fantastic tactician. He's great as a uh, a ground commander, a great leader of men. But then you see it's like him in front of a typewriter is a manifestation of like all the problems that he has in this episode where he's like just slowly hunting and pecking because he's just out of his element. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's consistently, we'll talk about the, the sort of, I guess the wrap up in a moment when Heiliger takes over command, but um, you know, he's not ready for it. I don't think, I mean, he's ready for it in in terms of his maturity and his, uh, his ability to handle the the mission. But I think mentally he's so used to his environment of, of commanding easy and combat operations that it, it's a real, uh, a real change for him to be in this staff position is what it is. And you see that that bit about Nixon. You see it kind of rub and bubble up to the surface when they're you know they're talking about bacon sandwiches and uh, Winters is nice and clean in his his uniform and uh, bacon sandwich. Winters is talking. <laughs> yeah, they're all ordering bacon sandwiches and coffee. He's got an aide. They're they're like making fun of him for this little private like poor little private that has to tend to him. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, while they're talking about Operation Pegasus, Winters makes sort of this, like, uncharacteristic biting remark that he's like, are we, you know, is easy going to run into another couple German companies that we can't see? Mm-hmm. And Nixon, that's a direct shot across Nixon's bow, who's the, the S2, the intel officer. Mm-hmm. And Nixon's like, you see any more bacon sandwiches, you let me know. And <laughs> I think that, you know, this is Winters, like, his frustration with the new role and his unfamiliarity with, with all of it kind of bubbling up. And this is a challenge he's not used to dealing with. It's not a difficult challenge for him, but it's, you know, mentally a big gear shift for him. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was definitely a, a completely different environment for, for him to work in. And, you know, as he was essentially, giving up command of easy to well to two other lieutenants because the first one didn't really work out for very long yeah you know he he got uh moose who who the guys liked uh ended up accidentally getting shot he and winners were out on for basically a stroll uh, which is probably ill-advised when they were kind of in the area that they were in yeah, right. So they they one of their guys who were out on patrol ended up uh, shooting Moose, and so that put him uh, that put him out. And so then Dyke came in. So very different, very different environment for Winters to be working in, and he he had a hard time letting go. Yeah, when you see that sort of moment there, this is like the last thing I, I guess I'll say, but before we talk about the the transition to Bastone, but. You see Roe really step in for the first time, the medic. Mm-hmm. As they're loading Heiliger up, Roe is, you know, trying to, to triage him and he Winters is clearly shaken up by the event, but he's asking him how much morphine he gave him, and Winters can't answer the question. Mm-hmm. And he said, Well, you're supposed to put the surrets, so the capsule that the morphine comes in, mm-hmm. you're supposed to tag it onto the uniform and that's so you can keep track of how much morphine's yep. been given. And Rose snaps on him. He says, you know, you're your officers and you're like adults. I didn't know. He's, yeah, you you ought to know. You, you should have. Yeah. And it's this moment where Winners I, I think it's a an important confrontation for Winners' sake cuz he's got to snap out of it. Like he's got a he's got a role to play like got it. You you're not in command of easy anymore and that sucks, but you got to you got to get back into the fight. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're definitely going to, I think, talk a little bit more medical stuff in the next episode because that has a huge focus on, um, on, on Eugene Rowe. But yeah, in, in this, I mean, it's, it's real important. And, and the whole reason why they need to know how much morphine is administered is because a, a high amount of morphine will essentially impact uh, someone's breathing. So if they give too much, they they can they can stop breathing, which obviously is an important thing for for the body to do. So um, they they need to be able to carefully monitor how much morphine they give. But yeah, that's 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 a good point. I, I actually completely didn't connect with that that we're working with the same medic uh, in this episode versus versus our next episode. Yeah, he's been in just sort of in the background he's maybe had a line or two here or there but that's the first time you really see him talk and it's a good segue and so then i loved how this episode ends because they they go from this moment of levity they're watching the john wayne movie Mm -hmm. 
and all of a sudden they get their next assignment. They're not really sure what they're supposed to go do. They're just on to the next job. And uh, the the cinematography of them rolling out in these trucks, they're just freezing. But next up is Bastogne. And it's not, this is not a uh, something that Easy thought or a situation that, that Easy thought that they would be in because it's, this is not an offensive operation by any means. They're coming in to, to clean up here. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's this particular situation is a serious failure of command to make sure that the logistics pipeline was was flowing for these guys. With them being in an active combat zone, regardless of where they were going to be deploying to, it was still going to be cold where they are. Uh, they should have had their, their winter gear queued up. They should have had a larger... Uh, ammunition uh, uh, ready to go. And so they were just severely underprepared as they mobilized. So as, as they're on their way to Bastogne, they're, you know, going one direction and coming the other direction are a, a, a whole line of soldiers who essentially are in retreat from this German offensive, uh, which which is technically called the Ardennes Offensive. Uh, it's it's what we commonly know as, as the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, re- really where this comes from is that this, this was Hitler's big, really final push, his, his last major push to try to defeat the Allied forces and push them out of uh, out of Europe and, and found this one particular weak spot. And it's called the Battle of the Bulge because if you look at it on a map, it's really it, what the Germans created was this significant bulge in the front line, uh, which pushed inwards toward the uh, toward the Allies, and did a lot of things, including getting uh, a, a number of Allied forces very quickly overwhelmed. This was essentially a blitzkrieg. The Germans pushed fast and hard with everything that they had at this particular point, and it uh, got a lot of uh, Allied forces caught behind the lines. But you had this group that was essentially in retreat from this offensive, and uh, the, the the guys from the uh, from from Easy realized, hey, these you know we're, we we need ammunition. These guys are carrying ammo, and they don't need it because they're in retreat. So we're going to start taking all the supplies we possibly can from them. Um, and and that was probably a smart move. That probably got them a little extra further uh, when once they got to Bastogne. And then we do see this that cameo from Jimmy Fallon as he kind of drives up uh, in the line with his jeep. Back of the jeep is filled with uh, ammo boxes and and crates and and that kind of stuff with with supplies. He has a little bit of an exchange with uh, with with Captain Winters. Saying, "Hey, this is all I was able to scrounge up. I can try to go get some more. It, it's getting kind of tough now. These guys got their asses kicked. They're getting out of here. Good luck to you guys going in. But just to let you know, it looks like you're going to be surrounded." And Winners, just dead ass serious, looks at him and says, <laughs> "We're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded." <laughs> Which is it, it's a it's a funny line, but then when you sit on it for a moment, it's like, "Wow, that's totally true." 
That's absolutely 100% true. I mean, the whole purpose of these guys is to parachute behind enemy lines. You are immediately yeah. surrounded. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that that's it's a bit of levity, but it's also like just totally serious and very meaningful. So uh, that last scene really sets one hell of a tone for the next episode. Yeah, and I just love the cinematography is there. They're rolling in on these trucks. The men are shivering, and they see the the unit that they're replacing coming back out. And they're all just sort of kind of trying to process what's going on. And then yep. they they start to make a move and take ammunition and what supplies they can off the the other soldiers. And it, it's this really ominous ending. And, and sort of cliffhanger almost that that is a great lead into the Bastone episode. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so oh. this go ahead. <laughs> I, well, I was just gonna. Yeah, I know where you're going. Yeah, I was just gonna intro you. Um, you you've brought in this uh, great segment on, on on our show here for military lingo. So what did the uh, what what were some of the terms that they threw at us in this episode? Well, first is Foot Locker. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about just starting to do, like, in all seriousness, some really obvious words that have nothing to do with the military, just to throw it make sure everybody's on their toes. The word now, road. So the first one, this... <laughs> yeah, road. So what these are, the, the Romans built them mm-hmm. originally, and, and it's just a, uh, you know, a paved or a dirt, unimproved, uh, patch that extends from one point to another and it just makes it easy to travel. Yeah. And so I, those things that you see easy walking on, those are roads. Don't, don't make me edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, the first one you see, again, another instance of artillery here. We were talking about at the crossroads, there's this exchange of artillery fire. Before the German artillery starts up, you see winners call in U.S. artillery. And he says this term "fire for effect," and this is another one of those terms that's—I I, don't—I wouldn't call it ubiquitous, but it is a very common term that's used. I, I think in common language, you hear it in video games all the time and other movies. Um, but what it really is is a an artillery term, and generally, it it refers to the point of, you know, sighting in artillery where you've got it properly calibrated and, you know, artillery, you're generally giving them uh, a range and sort of a, a grid coordinate to attack and they drop in rounds and then forward observers help guide the firing in because these artillery pieces are firing in some cases or a lot of cases from quite a distance away. Mm-hmm. And those the crew members on that artillery piece cannot see where these rounds are falling. So they really rely on forward observers, you know, whether they're in a lot of cases, they're not actual artillerymen. They're just soldiers that are trained as all soldiers are to, to look and guide these things in. And so that forward observer, once he gets the rounds to where he needs to, and it's a very quick process in a lot of cases, it, it had to be quick here because the Germans were, we're retreating, but uh, fire for effect is is you know we've got it sighted in, and you need to just drop rounds, mm-hmm. go ahead and and destroy the effect being the destruction of of the objective here. The you know in this case all the the Germans, it was kind of like an ant's nest that they kicked open there really, yeah. but 
Yeah, that's fire for effect. So if you if you think about it, you've probably been using it correctly when if you've just been you know saying it. But uh, that's that's where it comes from. SS is another one, and SS and what I'm this isn't really military specific lingo, but it's a bit of World War II history mm-hmm. because this is another term that's just synonymous with Nazis and with World War II. <clears throat> and I don't want to give a whole history lesson on the SS, but there were some unique aspects, the SS being one of them, of the German army, of the Nazi sort of war effort that made them very unique from really any other country that that went to war. And so the SS generally is, uh, you know, a portion of the Nazi party. It was not brought up as a piece of the the German military. Uh, You know, the German military existed long before the Nazi party came to power, but the SS were sort of like their secret police, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they rose to power, eventually you had a couple divisions of the SS, but the soldiers that you see in Crossroads, even though they don't really get into to who they are, these are probably what are called Waffen-SS soldiers. So the Waffen-SS is an armed wing of the Nazi SS organization, and so you had SS units within normal German military units. Um, and so the, you know, the, um, the term SS is just an abbreviation for shoot, Stoffel. My German is really, really poor. And Tim, uh, <laughs> your German will be far better, better than mine uh, at the end of your trip. But in any event, these were really infamous units because when you came up against an SS unit, these were just the most fanatical uh, units, typically, at least early in the war. These were units that were made up of sort of the the German ideal of the, the perfect Aryan race. I mean, you know, that's that's who they tried to... You couldn't just be any German and be in, in the SS. And so when you talk about some of the most fanatical, tenacious fighters that the Nazi party wielded, the SS were infamous, um, not only in their brutality, but in their just sort of feral that de- or fervent dedication to the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one that I wanted to touch on is, is battalion CP battalion is just a unit. And I think, you know, most folks have, have picked up on that. That's, uh, easy as a company, a company is subordinate directly to a battalion. Typically you'll have um, a few companies that'll come under a battalion's uh, you know, umbrella. But CP is something that gets tossed around because they're the area that EZ uh, is operating here near the crossroads is, is pretty close to CPs. And that's a command post. And a command post is, is not a complicated term. It's, it's almost self-explanatory. But that's where... Um, your your higher ranking, little the, the top end of the chain of command are going to operate out of, and that's sort of your base of operations uh, in the theater for uh, you know combat operations to go from. So you're that's why it was an important development in, in this episode <clears throat> that <clears throat> one of the CPs got hit. The the German SS unit that was near this uh, this crossroads area actually attacked Major Horton got killed mm-hmm. as, as Colonel Sink briefs winners on, and that's what opened up the spot for winners to, to move up. Um, generally, these CPs are, are very well protected. They're, they're not 
supposed to be right up on the front lines, but just the nature of this combat and of, of market garden in, in general, um, you know, left openings for, for some of this stuff to happen. So anyhow, that's, that's your, know your military lingo for this week. Perfect. That's awesome. Anything else that you wanted to cover in this episode? I just as a, like a final bit, cause I always like talking about the funny moments and we've talked about a few of them, but one of my favorites in this episode is, uh, Nixon hung over and I assume he's hung over <laughs> but he's sleeping in and Winters is like we gotta go and he won't get up he's like I'm, I'm right behind you just leave and Winters won't do it so he grabs a jug and my wife is instantly like that's piss and he throws <laughs> it on Nixon <laughs> and he jumps up out of bed and he's like that was my own piss <laughs> and Winters just stands there and laughs to himself <laughs> yeah <laughs> like let's go <laughs> Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, you touched on Jimmy Fallon. I like that they they sh- the, one of the last shots of Jimmy Fallon I guess just anticipated him looking directly into the camera, so it's just a a shot like straight on as if you're the person listening to Jimmy Fallon. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense for the story, but it allows him to look right into the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, I mean, this is a pretty young Jimmy Fallon, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it just, it's funny to see it. So, uh, so we're, that's it for this episode. We're going to wrap things up. Uh, as usual, we definitely appreciate your feedback. You can shoot us an email to dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can also find us online. The, on Twitter, the, the general, uh, Twitter feed is going to be at random chatter. You can find me at Thomas L. L is in Larry Harper. And Tim, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. You can also find all of the Random Chatter shows on the very aptly named website, randomchatter.com, which is very well organized. It has uh, a drop-down list of all of the Random Chatter shows. And what I love the most is that when you click on the show no matter what format that you want to listen in, listen to our shows on, it's all cataloged right there. So if you're in dispatches and you've been listening in one format, but you'd rather move over to, you know, iTunes, the links are all there. It makes it very, very easy. Yeah. So you can find us on iTunes, Google play and a a bunch of other feeds that uh, Eric just recently set up. So um, really where, you know, wherever it is that you want to find us, you can, we definitely appreciate you leaving us some great reviews. So wherever it is that you do find our, where you do find us, you know, whatever system they have, you click on the stars and certainly write in, you know, just a sentence or two about why you like us and, and, and what we're doing here. That helps to uh, kind of spread the word and, and get some other folks who might be looking for some good shows uh, to, to listen to. We also pre- appreciate you telling your friends about us. Whether these are people who you directly know, people you know on social media, people you work with, uh, people who uh, maybe they're total and complete strangers, maybe they're family members, whoever uh, likes World War II history stuff, whoever might be into Band of Brothers and, and the types of things that we talk about, please let them know that we are here and, uh, and where they can find us. And certainly encourage them to start with episode one. You know, they, they might want to jump into the middle of, of, of the show, but um, our catalog isn't that extensive and it's a mini series. So 
go back, start with episode one and kind of listen forward. Uh, we also appreciate uh, some, some support, financial support for the network. It's certainly important to us. Uh, I think we just started like another one or two shows within the last week on the network. It's uh, our, our growth in the last few months has seriously been exponential. So we're covering a whole variety of different interests. So please definitely go over to randomchatter.com and check out all the stuff that we have. And uh, financially, it definitely does help to cover our web hosting fees and data storage fees. And of course, the more that we grow, the more shows that we have, the more our data storage needs go up. So we have to pay for that kind of stuff and other things, just as any organization does. Find out more about that. You can go to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. Dollar a month is the minimum uh, amount to contribute. That gets you access to our Discord community. Uh, which is basically a series of online chat rooms. And through there, you can talk to Tom and I and a lot of our other hosts across the network about Band of Brothers, about Star Wars, about anything that might interest you. We've got a lot of different channels available there. If you just want to sample that, you can go to randomchatter.com slash discord, kind of get a taste. They'll get you into some of the public access areas that we have. See what that's all about. Give it a try. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. Thank you very much. I will not do this next part in Jar Jar's voice, though it was very, very <laughs> tempting this time. I'm sure it made all of your ears bleed in the last episode. You but should do it as Sobel would do it. As who? As Sobel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about that. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it now because I don't want to give everyone what they want. But maybe I'll take it under consideration. All right. Dispatches from the front is not endorsed by HBO and is not is. It's not intended for entertainment purposes. Yeah, we're not here to entertain you, darn it. (laughs) No. (laughs) Your punishment is almost over. That's right. It is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the Band of Brothers series are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Home Box Office Incorporated or their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with HBO. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. Your suffering is now over. Folks, thanks for joining us uh, for Dispatches from the Front. This was episode number five, covering Crossroads. You can catch our next episode, episode number six, talking about Bastogne. Thanks again. Thanks again.